good issue for all women. Hello, Mickey here. Welcome to the Sunday Chops. This week, it is my full chat with the excellent Joanne Harris, globally best-selling author of, among many other books, Chocolat, a book which so captivated Juliette Binoche, she demanded to play protagonist Vianne Rocher in the film. And you'll be pleased to know there's a whole load more of me murdering French pronunciation as I chat to Joanne about her latest book, The Strawberry Thief, and a myriad of other topics, including empty nest syndrome, magic and folklore, the pinkification of women authors, being a badass on Twitter, and that time someone left a machine gun in a garden hedge. Hello, I am with best-selling author and, potentially, secret witch, Joanne Harris. Hey, Hello. Joanne. Hello, it's nice to see you. I get offers on a, a weekly basis to join various covens around here. Amazing. I turn them off. I turn them down all the time. I'm not really a joiner of covens, but, you know, it's... Are you I'm, not I'm, curious? Oh, I know lots of people who are in covens. I know perfectly well what goes on. There's a lot less nudity and, and sacrifice and a lot more sitting around drinking tea, actually, as far as I can see. But yeah. If you were guaranteed more nudity and sacrifice, would you consider it? Probably even less so. If there was tea, then I might possibly be more tempted. <laughs> Thank you very much for inviting me into your home, which is gorgeous and smells delicious. I like things to smell nice because I can smell colours. I'm never quite sure what things smell around me, but colours and scents tend to kind of be around when I'm around. Obviously, you wrote Chocolat, which is 20 years old. It is 20 years old this year. Can we credit it? How has that happened? Do you know what? I have absolutely no idea. I was told that that book wouldn't sell, that any book in that style wouldn't sell. Um, And I kind of deliberately wrote it against the instructions of everybody who gave me any sort of advice about it, because at the time, that kind of thing just wasn't fashionable at all. I was supposed to be writing something very different, and, and I didn't want to. And so I didn't. So, Vianne Rocher, and I am so sorry I'm going to murder all of the French pronunciations. This is fine. That's, Vianne Rocher's fine. Oh, but listen to you. That was, oh, that was lovely. She talks about colours a lot and seeing in colours. So, I guess that relates to your own synesthesia. I think so. I mean, I have, I don't have much of a basis for comparison. And so, I tend to write about colours and smells as a kind of default. Whereas, I think most writers tend to think in visuals. I tend to think in in scents and because I relate scents to colours those two things come out quite a lot I don't think it would be possible for me to do otherwise there are lots of different types of synesthesia aren't there yes and yours relates smells to colours yes scents and particularly in bright lights are triggered by by colours and do you see colours around people no not quite but I kind of it was my way of adapting and and trying to give a a visual dimension to something that people don't always understand with me. Actually, the idea that red smells of chocolate is is perhaps one step too freaky. The fact that Vian feels in colours and senses colours around people was perhaps easier because it kind of reminds me of, of auras and, and something that people might have been personally exposed to. So Vianne Rocher is back. She is. She never really went away, to be honest. The Strawberry Thief is the fourth... In the, do, you, do you refer to it as a chocolat series? How do you refer to them? I don't really think of it as a series because the, the intervals are so large between each book. It, it's a kind of sequence of stories with returning characters, mm-hmm. sometimes with returning places. I think if it were a series, they would be close together in time and they wouldn't stand alone. I do think that they do stand alone. I th- I th- people keep asking me this and, and I say, well... Yeah, it it helps to have read the others if you want to expand the world. But yes, you you can completely read them alone and out of sequence. And you ought to be able to 
you know, the, the few references to other books are so few that I think people can work them out pretty easily. And how do you feel as a writer revisiting those characters or when you bring them back into your world to expand their world? Well, it's not so much me revisiting them as them revisiting me. I think of the characters as kind of existing in a way alongside me. And so I wouldn't, for instance, have wanted to write another Chocolat book the year after Chocolat, or even two years after Chocolat, I needed an interval of time to have passed, both for me and for the characters. And I think, most importantly, with this sequence of books, the characters do change because they evolve with time and and things happen to them and and years pass and children grow up and people die and, and, and all this changes the main characters. I didn't want to write Vian the same every time because... That wouldn't have felt true. It wouldn't have felt as if she was a living, breathing person. And so people don't always like it. People were quite surprised with the lollipop shoes when Vian had moved somewhere else and time had passed and life had changed her and she'd changed some of her attitudes. And you know, some people were going, well, we wanted her the way she was before. Why did you change her? And I just had to say, well, I didn't change her. Life changed her and time changed her. And that's what happens when people are alive. And the same is true with this book too. Not quite 20 years have passed for Fian, but it's not far off. And so inevitably, she and I have had a similar kind of experience in parenthood, similar kinds of relationship experiences, similar losses and changes. And so, although I am not her, I'm using some of my experiences to, to channel her and to continue with her progress. Could you tell us a little bit about the story of the Strawberry Thief specifically, please? Okay, well, I'm going from the basis that people are more or less familiar with the uh, the previous stories. Vian, who left the village at the end of Chocolat, is now back and has more or less settled down. Anouk has stayed in Paris with her boyfriend. Rosette is now 16. She has various problems, behavioural and psychological problems nobody quite knows exactly what her condition is but she doesn't speak um she doesn't socialize terribly well she's being homeschooled vian is quite happy with this situation because rosette will always be there by her side and she feels that she's never going to lose that particular bit of her little family the florist opposite vian's shop uh, in lanskenay is an old man called Narcisse who pops up in some of the other books and he dies being very elderly and leaves all his property to his daughter except for a wood which he leaves to Rosette. The daughter is very put out because um, she feels that the value of the land has been reduced and she is also absolutely convinced that there's something buried there, some kind of treasure, uh, the money that she feels her father should have had and didn't. Um, she's convinced that this is the reason he's left the wood to Rosette. He also leaves um, a written confession to Renaud, the priest, even though he didn't like Renaud at all. And Renaud feels that, in fact, he's being personally targeted by <laughs> this decision to, to leave him a long manuscript that he has to read he's out, of, out of duty. He's not happy at all. And Narcisse tells the story at some length about his own childhood and various events which which are revealed slowly that happened during the war and and the the situation eventually gets gets unraveled it's a bit of a long journey for Renaud you know he's a character that that was not particularly likable in Chocolat who has found ways of 
perhaps being more acceptable to people. And, and there were a few loose ends around his past that I wanted to to try to, to tie up in The Strawberry Thief, and I think I did. Meanwhile, Narcisse's shop has been taken over by another shop owner, a woman who Vian mistrusts immediately, partly because her arrival is very like Vian's own arrival. Yeah. And she feels that they have something in common and she's not happy about that. She, she's she scared feels, of the similarities. She does. She yeah. feels that, well, she's had a bad experience with a similar kind of woman who almost got away with stealing her children away from her. And so now she feels that there is some kind of challenge being delivered by, by this woman, who is a tattooist, in fact, and who has opened a tattoo shop. She's not only a tattooist, she is, she is a woman who doesn't have any feet, who has prosthetic feet, and around whom there is a kind of magical mystery. Is it Morgane or Morgane? How... Morgane, her name is. Which is clearly a witchy name, of course. Of course it is. And she is, to a certain extent, another kind of mirror image of Fian. In several other books, Fian has encountered mirror images of herself, and she's not always been capable of dealing with them very well. In the case of Morgane, she feels particularly threatened. I've been lucky enough to read The Strawberry Thief, so I do have some thoughts, particularly about the themes of love, loss, grief, fear... That yes. are, are within Vian, particularly. They're within quite a few of the characters in The Strawberry Thief, but particularly within Vian, she is a parent struggling to come to terms with empty nest syndrome. And Absolutely. I mean, she's got some special powers that. She has indeed, but she is, she is a parent, as you say, who is coming to terms with her child growing into adulthood and moving away and getting married and leaving. And because she is a person who has never really felt she belonged anywhere, she has a particularly close relationship with her children. The idea that, you know, they might be separated is, is unbearable to her. She's had to cling on to her children because she hasn't ever had a home and she hasn't really ever had a proper relationship outside of her children. She's had to not only come to terms with the fact that this can happen, but also had to fight herself she has a daughter who is who is grown up, Anukan, who is going to move away, and she has another daughter who, because of her condition, may never grow up. And she feels that she has been able to keep Rosette in a kind of snow globe where she isn't going to move away and she isn't ever going to stop needing her. But I think as the novel progresses, you realise that Vian is the one in the snow globe. Yes. That, in fact, she is the one who needs to learn to move on and to discover her life and not to be constantly forcing herself back into this role as a parent, which pulls her child back into her role as a child. And without giving too much away, much of this is about Vian confronting her fears, which are already very profoundly articulated in Chocolat. Even even then, when, when Anouk is, is very small, she's already afraid of losing her. I don't have children, but I remember my mum and this sense that she felt she was losing me. Mm. And I think... As with a lot of things in society, women are dismissed. Oh, it's like, like I use the phrase empty nest syndrome. Like, oh, you just have to deal with it. But it's so hard. It is such a big pull. Did you draw on your own experiences? I think inevitably, um, although my daughter is not Anouk, she is not a million miles away from Anouk. They've got nearly the same name. They shared the same invisible friend as children. And it, it was not an accident that Chocolat was about a woman with a young child when, when I already had a young child and then later a woman with an adolescent, and now, as my daughter has just got married and, and moved away, the mother of an adult child. I think I had to bounce some of those experiences off myself to be able to recreate them in, in Vian, and although her story isn't quite my story, 
and it's it's not really autobiographical in that way. I think there are certainly elements of personal experience that I've brought in because why wouldn't you as a writer take in all the feelings and the things that have happened to you and, and make them part of the narrative you're telling? Do you think it is quite hard for a woman who isn't a writer to express how it feels to almost feel like you're losing your children? There's a lovely line and it's actually a line my mum used to use to me that children are on loan and mm. you have to give them back. And Vianne's mother says it to her. She does, yes. I'm not sure where that concept came from. I think it's something that we get by osmosis, perhaps, through our parents and, and we then pass them on. Clearly, it's something that we feel. And I think everybody who has read the book has felt a kind of echo. And I think, yes, you're right. Women are sometimes dismissed. Women's experiences are dismissed. It's considered domestic and therefore not relevant to the human experience. But actually... You know, here we are, more than 50% of the human experience and 100% of the reproductive experience is still parent. We should come to terms with these things and realise that we're actually, we're articulating something that's very universal. In The Strawberry Thief, as in with a lot of your books, there's that beautiful magic realism and actual magic. Where does the fascination with that world stem from for you? And the kind of magic that I write about it is, it's not a magic for special people. It's not, you don't have to have a special Hogwarts education or, or be born a wizard or anything like this to, to have magic. It is entirely a human characteristic. When you look at the words that describe magic, other words for magic, we've got words like charisma and charm and glamour and enchantment and all these things. And these, these things have dual meanings, all of them. One is the fiction, the folklore of magic with all its pyrotechnics, and the other is the language of the human heart. And so the magic that I write, and particularly in these books, is very much a kind of dual magic. It is, it is the magic of runes and inscriptions and, and chocolate and the history of chocolate and the chemistry of chocolate and the science of chocolate. But it's also the magic that you can do alone, the things that you can do to change your world. And, and those are not necessarily supernatural things at all. Have you ever cast a spell? Have you ever sort of dipped your toe into that water? Oh, all the time. Yeah, I cast spells all the time. A lot of people, a lot of English people particularly, and I say this as, as somebody who is at least 50% French, that there is this, this kind of occult significance to smells and the idea that you, 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 know, you, you, have to, you have to burn candles and you have to sort of sprinkle herbs and speak Latin and this kind of thing. But you know, my, my, my grandmother and my great-grandmother used to do spells for everything. There were spells to make the bread rise. There were spells to, you know, to keep the cat indoors. There, there were spells to make you lucky on certain days. And, and my great-grandmother used to, used to tell fortunes based on a system that she had evolved personally. It was based on the little pieces of thread that people who in those days wore long dresses would accumulate on the hem of their frock. And so depending on whether it was a Wednesday and the thread was red or yellow and it was in a particular place, then it would, it would have a particular meaning. And, and certain flowers you couldn't bring into the house, or if you did bring them into the house, they were bad luck and you had to say a certain spell yes. to dispel the flowers. Yes. Dandelions particularly, but also what you call the marigolds. 
uh, the name of which means troubles in French. And so if you brought marigolds into the house, then you'd be bringing trouble, unless you had a spell, which meant that you had to sweep the house 10 times with a shins while singing a little song. And all these things, I was brought up with this. And so to me, smell, spells, I keep saying smells, but actually there, there isn't that much of a difference. Spells and nursery rhymes were very, very similar in my mind. And actually, when you look at your mother goose and the history of English nursery rhymes, you see that actually a lot of them are magical mm -hmm. in construction and they all have hidden meanings and they all have ritual significance, which brings us back, of course, to, to faith and religion because praying and spells are not that different. They both have a ritual element. They both have a mind-altering element. They are both things that people will go through to take them from one state of mind into another state of mind. And hopefully both are supposed to be transformative. I'm very much of the, the school of belief that if it works, then it works. And whether that's prayer or lighting a candle or thinking happy thoughts or doing a chant or visualising something in your future, if it works, then fine. I wouldn't really question what it was. I am going to get that spell for keeping the cat indoors off you before Absolutely. I go, though. Yeah. <laughs> and another aspect of that is fairy tales, which you've touched on. And your books are beautiful modern-day fairy tales. And again, we're still fascinated by fairy tales. There's a lot we can learn from them. Why do you think they are still hanging around? Well, the reason they're still hanging around, and some of them are very old, is that in some way they help us to articulate things that we're not comfortable or capable of articulating in any other way. Now, I think if we look at the, the history of fairy tales, and some of them are very old, and some of them have undergone transformations um, to make them more palatable to a, a modern readership. At the moment, I'm on Twitter, I'm tweeting about the child ballads, which are our particular version of Grimm's fairy tales, and they are not as well known as Grimm's fairy tales. And this is something that intrigues me, and I'd like to, to have them better known. But they are extremely dark. They are all about cruelty and suffering and unfairness and huge amounts of violence against women. And it strikes me that these things are a kind of way of helping people cope with what was actually in their lives, which was actually cruel and violent and full of, uh, full of awfulness. Mm -hmm. It was a way of trying to reframe the human experience into a way that allowed people to, to believe that monsters could be overcome, that love could save us, that sometimes you do get to go to the ball, that sometimes your world can be changed by something, and which encourages a kind of belief in, again, magic, the transformative power of magic. And we still need all this. We still live in dark and challenging times. We still have things that we're afraid of, that we have to, we have to reimagine as monsters, because actually just facing them and going this is a possibility in my life, is just too hard for some people to do. And making a monster fictional and then defeating it with the help of a heroine or a hero, it, it's, it's a great way of exercising that monster, that demon, whatever it is. Joanne, please tell me you're working on the Brexit ballad so that ah, you're creating that monster and I've defeating been, it. <laughs> I have been writing Brexit ballads for the last three years. <laughs> but yes, I think we need stories now more than we ever did. And of course, stories bring us together. Stories are all about shared experience. And we look at the folk tales of Europe and then we look at the folk tales of Australia 
the folk tales of Africa, they may be very different culturally and in the way that they're expressed, but actually the, the intrinsic themes are still absolutely the same. They're still about heroism and courage and confronting monsters and changing your life. This is universal everywhere we go. And as well as sharing your stories in the books that you write and publish, you're much more visceral. You go out into the world and you do storytelling clubs and cabarets, right? <laughs> yes, indeed. We've got uh, we've got a show, a story time with, with me and the band that I've been in since I was 16. And we, we do a show which is stories and visualisations, images projected onto a screen, original music, songs, and, and we, we kind of have created this, this show, which is a work in progress and has been for the last three, four years now, but which is you know getting more and more complicated every time we do it. <laughs> and it's great fun and people enjoy it. And I get lots of people who, who come to me at the end and go, well, we had no idea what this was going to be, but it was magical and nobody's told me a story since I was little, which is interesting. Yeah, why do we stop? I think that we're partly the victims of the Victorians who who drew the teeth of a lot of our folk stories and fairy tales and tried to make them less intimidating and tried to make them childish things, whereas actually I don't think they understood that children love the dark and the challenging and adults need the dark and the challenging. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting that whole making stuff more palatable. I'd like to talk to you a little bit about women authors mm. and they're still not getting the respect that they deserve so as i touched on earlier the strawberry thief it, it's quite dark i'd say it's probably the darkest of the four books with these characters in you may well disagree and you are very much allowed to i think they're all pretty dark in their way they all have elements of darkness if people want to find them i think you know the fact that there is also this element of domesticity and this sweetness and this food doesn't mean that they are not actually dark and scary on a different level Mm -hmm. but it depends very much what people choose to see in things I think it depends very much who reads them some people will latch on to these dark themes and others will just kind of think oh it's a delicious story because it has chocolate in it this is fine both ways of reading it are just fine by me I had a little chat with Marion Keyes about this because Mm -hmm. of the way her books are packaged ah yes quite often they're dismissed as and I'm going to put it in inverted commas, chiclet, mm-hmm. which again in itself is a derogatory term. It of just course means it is. A it's woman a, has written this. It's a ridiculous term. It means it's by women, for women, therefore it's not for the whole of humanity. I, I've banged on about this on Twitter many a time. Um, the idea that it is perceived still within publishing that men who write stories about relationships are doing it because they are making an important contribution to how we understand relationships. Whereas when women write about relationships, their love stories, their chick lit, their woman's fiction, they are not for men to read because men are above that kind of thing. Men what do want we to know, read. Joanne? Come Absolutely, on. yes, we're only 52% of the population. No, it, it's, it's unfortunately, it's very much the, the dismissing of women's art has... has you know, been a thing for a really long time and continues to be a thing, even though some women have been very successful and have been lauded. There is still a tendency to to assume that to be a woman author is to be less than to be a male author, regardless of what you're writing about. And And this is something that really needs to be addressed, and it needs to be addressed from the bottom. It needs to be done from the start with children's fiction, because if you follow let books be books and let toys be toys accounts on yes. twitter 
you'll see how much the enormous division between boys reading and girls reading has come. There was always a bit of a division when I was a kid, but not as much as there is now. We are now getting actual teachers and parents saying to children, no, you can't read this book because it is for somebody else. It is going to create adults who believe that men and women are so different that even their books are not of relevance to each other, which to me is very sad and also profoundly wrong. Absolutely agree with you. Absolutely. But yes, girls' books with pink covers, women's books with pink covers. You can't imagine the number of discussions I've had with various publishers about not putting pink covers on my books. Well, you say that, and the pinkification. I heard an interview with Jojo Moyes a few years back, and she was talking about this. Mm. And the fact that even though it's your book, you don't always get the say in no. the marketing, and that is no, considered hardly part ever. of the marketing. Hardly ever. I'm, I'm lucky, and I'm also very, very persistent in that I always I've seen you on have Twitter. a say in the that. marketing. I always want to know straight away what they are thinking about because actually there's no point waiting until somebody has already created a book jacket to say, I don't like that. You have to actually be in there on the ground floor going, these are my ideas. Can I see your ideas? So that you, know, you don't have somebody commissioning uh, an artist to finish a painting and then go, actually, I think it should be different. But you also you have to fight your battles. I mean, I can have a certain amount of control over my English book jackets, but my foreign book jackets, I don't really. And some of them are just awful and terribly misleading. That must must feel quite personal as a, a visceral feeling of not liking something when it's got your name on it. Well, it can be annoying, but I think you do have to, to know what battles to, to fight. And I think when it comes to, I mean, I've got, how I think, 56 different foreign publishers now. I can't fight every single battle on every single front. And sometimes also I have to be humble enough to think, well, this one doesn't personally speak to me, but do I know the Croatian market or the the Indian market or the Russian market? Am I really in a position to say that that's not the cover that they need? I do know the British market, though, and I do know that there is a tendency to put pink covers on books by girls and... I just try and fight against that a little bit because I just know that it is not going to be read by, by everybody that way. Yeah. And when I wrote, when I wrote a book that, uh, that seemed to be more masculine in tone, this was Gentlemen and Players, which is set in a boys' school and there are hardly any female characters in there. Even then, my publisher wanted to put a pink jacket on it. And I said, well, why do you want to do that? And he said, well, I don't want to alienate your female readers. Yeah, but we'll read anything. At which point thing. expletives were uttered, Nikki. They were, they were uttered. And I ended up with a green jacket, which was just fine. But yeah, I did, there is this sort of tendency in publishing, and particularly for men in publishing, to feel that women won't read something that doesn't have a jacket expressly designed for them. And that means chintzy and frilly and pink. It's a good job that men understand women so well, right? Ah, well, there you go. Yes, where would we be without them? <laughs> she growled she growled listeners very quietly <laughs> thanks very much for listening to our voices but we're keen for you to treat your eyes and come look upon our faces our next gig at london's king's place on april the 18th is a pre-easter doozy featuring helen lederer jade adams and the boss herself sarah millican it's also followed by a bank holiday well hello mr wine get in my mouth Information and booking details for this and all of our upcoming events can be found at www.standardissuepodcast.com. Hey 
Hey there, you lot. If you want to follow every aspect of our lives on social media, and why wouldn't you, because you're only human, you can! We're on Twitter as a team, at Standard Issue UK, or individually on at Inspiragen, at That Dunleavy, and at Mixter Noonan, and I'd like to think it'll be fairly obvious who's who. We're on Facebook as well, at Standard Issue Magazine, and even Instagram, at Standard Issue Podcast. Come to us, look at our faces. Talking of picking your battles, you are glorious on Twitter. <laughs> you you were doing some sterling work there. So, fighting for authors' rights, can you talk us through 10 Things About, which is your ongoing series I see on Twitter as a hashtag? Ah, yes, well, I've been doing 10 Things About for, for quite some years now. And Initially, I kind of chose my own subjects, and, and eventually I found that I was getting requests, and so now... Unless I have something very specific to say, I will take requests. And people tend to ask about things to do with writing the process or publishing the process or agents and what they do or this kind of thing. The the kind of questions that I would have loved to have had answers for when I was starting off and there was absolutely nobody to tell me anything. Mm -hmm. And I had to make all the mistakes that I've made before actually coming up with the right way to do things. So I thought, you know what, I, I can share some of this experience and, you know, it beats just Instagramming my food or, or, or this kind of thing. It, it actually gives me something to something to say. And I also think that, you know, 15 years in teaching never quite leaves you. Sometimes they are kind of little rapid online seminars. But some of them are also raising awareness on various issues to do with authors. And this is traditionally published as well as self-published authors, the idea that trying to push back against the idea in the media that authors are tremendously wealthy and therefore don't need paying for things like festivals or copyright usage or this kind of thing. So I've been trying in my way to open up about the reality of this because for every J.K. Rowling, there are 10,000 authors that you've never heard of who are struggling, who are you know, basically earning less than the minimum wage and, and those people need a voice and this is why... I'm on the management committee of the Society of Authors. This is why I'm on the board of the ALCS. And this is why, effectively, without being especially political by temperament, I've ended up being a shop steward and trying to raise awareness on behalf of members of of what it's really like. It's the Society of Authors. Right. It's the trade union for for authors. And it is well worth joining for all sorts of reasons, quite apart from the the insurance and the contract advice and also the the ability to get together and network with people who are like you yeah but we do we lobby parliament we've we've done all sorts we've we've managed to solve the very thorny problem of ebooks and vat which has been something that's been you know a real thorn in our side for a long long time we're trying to raise awareness of copyright i've seen a lot recently about works just being stolen and like being put for sale on the internet yeah absolutely and all the time once it's there it's much harder to get it taken down than to stop it going up in the first place all the time and and i think there are a lot of people who who are profoundly confused about all this there are people who feel that ebooks just aren't the same as regular books and therefore they should be free um, it's the same because with they're not made content. of paper. It's the same with photographs. Mm-hmm. It's the same with music. It's the same with a lot of other things. And yes, we do need to fight over this because, you know, if you are, for instance, a self-published author whose sales are going to go into the hundreds no more and your book is being pirated on a site, then 
It's not even so much a question of the money. It's the very small amount of validation and visibility that you're going to get as an author, which that person is denying you. Mm -hmm. And of course, we've got professional authors who are being kept on by publishers on the basis of a minimum number of sales. And if you do have websites allowing people to download a million ebooks a month and your book is among them, then, you know, you may well fall below that that level of sales that your publisher deems acceptable and you will lose your publisher. And this is why we've lost a lot of very good mid-list authors who were happily ticking on about, you know, selling about 10,000 copies a year, who are now suddenly selling half that many because their books are being pirated and therefore are no longer getting published. Mm. Or series that are doing fine for the first two books and then suddenly, boom, the sales go down and guess what? It's because the books are being pirated and that the series will not be be commissioned to its end by the publisher because they feel that it's not worthwhile. So it's, it's not good for the authors, but it's not good for the readers either who want those books to continue. It's not good for small bookshops and small publishers that are going out of business. It's not good for libraries that are having their clientele taken away and moved online. So there's a a whole knock-on effect on all sorts of areas of publishing here. It's not just about authors not making a living anymore, which which was always hard anyhow. Yeah, what can us muggles do? Well, I think anybody, whether they are a reader or a writer or just an interested party, can have a look at, if they do see books being pirated, there is now a chain of command. You inform the author, who informs the publisher, who informs the Publishers' Association, who then informs the branch of city police that has an IP theft department and they actually do work with those people. And that's, that's basically the chain of command. It's, it's not a good idea to go straight to the police because they will be overwhelmed. Yes. Um, but yes, authors going to publishers, then putting pressure on the publishing association who are working already with the police to try and stop piracy. That helps enormously. And also the other thing, of course, is just, you know, don't download stuff for free. Unless it is legitimately from, let's say, a site like Project Gutenberg, which all the works are out of copyright and therefore freely available and perfectly legal. But if it's a new book or a newish book and the author is still alive and you're downloading it for free, then unless the author themselves has made it available, which we sometimes do as promotional stuff, it's probably not legal. So A, don't do it and B, you know, express disapproval if friends do it because some people genuinely think it's okay until they're told it's not okay you know what it actually harms people and this is why good call i like that you're using twitter for good ha (laughs) how are you finding twitter at the moment well it has always been pretty much the twitter that you deserve (laughs) and so if if you if you say lots of things that will bring all the trolls to your yard then the block button is your friend and I use it plenty. And when I talk about feminism or various other things or politics, I, I eventually get lots of trolls and I, I block them. But actually, you know, mostly I get a pretty good lot on Twitter. I've always used Twitter rather than a kind of sales point. I've always used it as a way of keeping in touch with people I know and like, talking to people about things I'm interested in, broadcasting information to anybody who wants it, telling stories... I mean, you know, there are a lot of things on Twitter that, that do not bring out the best in people. And, and I can completely understand that some people would rather step away from that. And it's entirely a personal choice, I think. You know, there was somebody twitting me on Twitter the other day because <laughs> she felt that I had not made my support for Jeremy Corbyn strong enough. 
And I said, well, first of all, assume that if I don't talk about something on Twitter, it's probably not because it was an oversight. <laughs> it's probably because I was talking about something else or I didn't want to talk about that stuff. Yeah. You know, I'm not obligated to talk about anything at all. And I think people think I'm very open on Twitter, and I am, but there are also things that I don't talk about at all. And that is absolutely fine. That is absolutely. Well you know, right. I, there are things that I think are personal and, and I don't bring them up. In the same way that if somebody desperately wants to have a conversation with me at 5.30 in the morning about something that I am not interested in, then I, I have every right to say, you know what, not going to do that. Jog on, mate. Absolutely. I would like to know what is the weirdest thing that a fan has ever given you? Oh, God, I've had so many weird things. I think one of the creepiest ones was um, the guy who sent me um, Valentine's card made of hair. And I'm pretty sure it wasn't from his head. Oh I've had some very, very odd things. Some very nice things. I mean, I've had some some lovely gifts through the post and, and things like bits of jewellery. And they, they, they nearly always come without a signature. I, I got this bee pendant, which I wear when I'm doing story time. Because when my, my musical show, which is all about the stories, the bees used to tell. But yes, I have, I have had quite strange things. I mean, I, I don't count the machine gun that I found in my garden hedge as a, a gift exactly. It may have been a threat or a warning or just somebody ditching the murder weapon. I have no idea. I never found out about. But uh, yes, people I've... send authors all kinds of things. What is next for you? I believe you're going on a tour. Oh, I am indeed. I'm starting in my hometown of Huddersfield and going off pretty much everywhere. I'm, I'm, it's a proper full UK tour. I'll be going up to, to Glasgow, to Edinburgh, um, doing some events in London. I will be using the, the perfume that CPL Labs made for me to, uh, to illustrate the book with scents. I'll be doing some events with that to try and see how a scent illustration works for people. And I'll be reading on, from the book, obviously. What? Ah, well, you didn't know that, did you? No, well, this is new information. Well, this was an idea that I had um, about illustrating novels and, and because I've recently been working with an illustrator and because it's been very illuminating in all kinds of ways I thought well you know could we have other kinds of illustrations and, and because I've illustrated with with music with story time illustrated stories with music I thought well maybe we could have a, a scent dimension in here and so I had a contact at CPL labs who make Joe Malone and all sorts of other perfumes and um, and I said well would you be interested in working with me and and you know perhaps helping me create a scent. And so I sent them um, a passage from the then manuscript of The Strawberry Thief, and it was a particular passage which had a lot of distinct sense impressions in there, and said, well, yeah, how do you feel like you're making a scent out of this? And they said, oh, yeah, we'll do this. Um, and so I've come up with a sort of limited edition scent uh, from CPL. and, and um, Is it called The Strawberry Thief? It's called Thief? The Strawberry Thief. Yeah, you can't buy it, but it will be, it will be available to try at least at my, my readings. It was really interesting because I think that we forget how important scent is to people, even people who don't have scent colour synesthesia. Just the idea that scent can be evocative on a slightly different level and can make us feel things in a slightly different way. And I wondered whether actually physically introducing this scent into readings would make a difference. And I thought, has anyone ever done this? Probably not, because it's a weird and strange thing to do. What Being a weird, idea? strange thing to do, I thought, yeah, let's do it. Let's do this. You are not putting any pay to my secret witch theory. Eh. <laughs> you just add into it. You just add into it. <laughs> because you also make playlists for each book while you're writing them. I do. 
What kind of tunes were you blasting while you were thinking about the strawberry theme? I had a playlist which was mostly from from the 90s. I was trying to go back to Chocoline in some ways. I had quite a lot of stuff that I associate with the, the period at which I wrote Chocolat. It was interesting because I recorded the audiobook of Chocolat at the same time that I was actually writing The Strawberry Thief. And it was, it was interesting to see how those two dovetailed and how familiar, but also how different the voices were and how certain things had evolved. And I was reading things into Chocolat that I hadn't realised had been there at the time of writing because That's now I've got the, the element of distance and so I can see different things. And so I was, I was playing music from, from that time. But yes, I mean, some, some books have more, um, more important playlists. I mean, different class, for instance, you, you kind of expect that was a lot of, there was a lot of pulp on there. Yes. Um, <laughs> Blue Eyed Boy had, I actually published the playlists. I put them, I put them in the book as part of the, the narrative because it was a story that was set very much online and much of it was about what was being listened to at every specific moment in the plot and, and some of those songs contained little clues as to what was going to happen next and so people quite liked some people quite liked to listen to the the playlist while they were reading the book so they could try and determine what was happening and what would happen ahead um, so sometimes that happens but not not always but to me that too was a form of illustration we don't exist in a sense vacuum we're never no, we just don't. one of them no we we don't and and i think well i've always liked the idea of totally immersive reading in as much as, as was possible, which is why I write about scents and colours and sensations and sounds. And I try to sort of pack as many sense impressions as possible into descriptions instead of just describing what can be seen, which, which is generally the way that most people mm. think when they're writing. Most people think visually. I thought, well, you know, what if, what if I try to express how I think, which is not generally visual in that respect, it's much more about emotive responses to different sense impressions. You're the Heston Blumenthal of fiction. <laughs> I'm not sure how to take that. <laughs> Doesn't he have people licking, licking wallpaper? Absolutely. No, he's brilliant. He's, he's, <laughs> he's, he's wonderful. Well, thank you. That's a very nice compliment. But I do like the idea of people feeling that they are there somehow and therefore as much detail as I can put into a scene. You know, why wouldn't I? Joanne, where can people find you? I live on Twitter mostly. You do? What's your handle? I am Joanne Chocolat and I'm usually there. I'm, I, I, I have a sort of shed on Facebook, but I don't go there very often and it's full of spiders. And, and <laughs> so generally the people who try to get in touch with me on Facebook don't know me very well and they don't get a reply for weeks uh, when I think of actually checking Facebook. They can find me on Instagram as well and, and I, have, uh, I have a presence on Instagram, which is which is mostly showing things that are not perfect in my life. Um, many people find it hilarious that I'm always burning stuff when I'm cooking and that none of my cakes ever turn out looking normal. You're using Instagram for the reverse of Instagram. I'm, I'm, I a, reverse, that. I'm a reverse Instagrammer, indeed. Um, Sterling work. And, and I, I post a variety of extremely unflattering selfies when I can think about it. And this too, this too is a sort of anti-Instagram gesture, I think, which is... Which is probably much needed and the strawberry thief available in all good bookshops thank you so much for talking to us my pleasure thank you standard issue for all women